well, volume is king, that's for sure, but quality of movement, you know, that's also something that uh, it doesn't make any sense to swim 20 kilometers a week if, if, if you do not know how to swim freestyle properly. That Triathlon Show 222. up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview ferris l sultan who is uh, the world champion of the ironman world championships in kona from 2005 and uh, since uh, retiring from professional triathlon himself himself and moving into coaching he is most well known for coaching Patrick Lange to two world championship titles and one third place in Kona. Currently, Ferris works with the German Triathlon Federation and is uh, working on bringing up the nation's draft legal success to closer match the successes that they've seen on the long-distance triathlon side. So a great conversation that you are about to hear. But before that, let's thank our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Please remember that Precision Hydration has a great blog that is about more than just hydration and nutrition. One thing that uh, they've been writing over the winter is a series of uh, off-season blog posts that uh, features several of their sponsored athletes, including pro triathlete Scott De Filippis, para triathlete Claire Cashmore, and Olympian Eilish McGolgan. So, and there are others that will be coming out in the next few weeks and will already be published by the time that you listen to this episode. So those have been really interesting. I've enjoyed reading them and get some insights into what different athletes and coaches are doing. And uh, yeah, make sure that you read that and other just general endurance training blog posts that they create because they are good quality articles. But of course, the main business of Precision Hydration is the electrolyte products. So go and take their free online sweat test to find out what uh, your, the ballpark estimate for your sweat sodium content is. And uh, you can check out their electrolyte supplements that match how you sweat based on that sweat test and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15 on precisionhydration.com. And big thank you to Roka. Roka first got started as a wetsuit manufacturer and then slowly but surely added other products like dry suits and swim skins and so on to their lineup. But their most recent focus point uh, is uh, adding prescription glasses to their offerings. And these prescription glasses have the same sort of technologies and research and development behind them as their performance sunglasses. So anti-slip technology, very lightweight and durable. And uh, you can also customize them and they have home try-on options. Uh, that is for the US only and the prescription glasses is for the US only. But all the other products like wetsuits, trisuits and so on, you can find internationally. And uh, Roka will redirect you to the EU site uh, if you're in Europe and Australia site and so on, depending on where you are. You can visit roca.com forward slash TTS to get a 20% discount code for your entire Roca order. So whether you're looking for prescription glasses or triathlon gear and equipment, Roca is uh, the place to go to do your shopping. 
Without any further ado, here's the interview with Faris L. Sultan. Welcome to that triathlon show, Faris. How are you doing this morning? I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to have you. Uh, you're somebody who has been involved in triathlon for a long time as an athlete and a coach at uh, very successful levels in both, obviously. Uh, can you just give a very brief overview for, there might be listeners that for some reason have not heard of you, but what's the, the brief bio of yourself? Well, of course, my claim to fame is uh, the win of the Ironman World Championship in 2005. Um, in the year before that and after that, I was third. And uh, I've had several um, other top 10 finishes uh, in Kona and uh, obviously a few uh, Ironman victories. And so I belong to the to the to the club of the six German uh, Ironman Kona champions. And uh, you coached uh, Patrick Lange to his uh, victories at Kona as well? Yes, yes. Uh, that was uh, an, an unexpected but uh, obviously very satisfying success that I've had. I can imagine. So being involved from uh, when you started, when you were active and when you won in 2005 and uh, until now these recent victories of Patrick's, you have probably seen the sport change quite a bit how do you think it has changed in uh, the almost 20 years since uh well 15 years i did the uh, math uh, not too good there but uh, 15 years since you won <laughs> well of course the sport has changed i did my first triathlon in 1996 and uh, in those uh, 24 years <clears throat> the sport has changed it has become more professional um and the the amount of professionalism that we have right now is just so far beyond what we've had back in the day um, regarding nutrition, regarding equipment, um, regarding training. <clears throat> you know, when I started out, I, I deliberately chose not to work with a coach because I said that you know, right now, who can coach me? I I thought that uh, there is so little knowledge besides, of course, uh, Mark and Dave, uh, Mark Allen and Dave Scott, um, and maybe some guys in the US that, um, you know, I, I probably wouldn't benefit from anybody because we all do so many mistakes and we know so very little. And obviously that has changed um, tremendously over the years can you give some examples on each of those sides that you mentioned training and nutrition equipment <coughs> of uh, well equipment is pretty obvious i guess but maybe training and nutrition would be interesting to hear the differences between what you did back in the day and what for example patrick has been doing in preparation for his victories well so regarding regarding nutrition for example now we've had we do have the opportunity to to take up uh, much more energy because we know exactly how um, uh, glucose intake works and uh, and sugar or basically sugar intake works. Um, and uh, most athletes nowadays simply use gels. Back in the day, there was no gel. Gel it was about to be invented, and uh, 
Um, and we were trying with uh, potatoes and, and bars. And, you know, there were athletes that had tremendous problems um, to, to make it through an Ironman because they couldn't uh, get their nutrition right. And nowadays we have so many options. So um, this, this has changed uh, on the, in the nutrition side. Um, on the training side, you know, there were so many things experienced people could see and could make something out of it, but we did not understand the physiology behind it. You know, like uh, <clears throat> what came up in the last yeah five to ten years to a broader audience uh, is everything about uh, the the maximum lactate production uh, v v um, la max, uh, LA max. Yeah. Um, that, that that was never heard of I, i've never heard of uh, that throughout my career but it explains a lot of um, experience that uh, experiences that uh, i've had um, seeing other other athletes train um, and on the equipment side Back in, in my day, we already had quite solid bikes and we had good wheels. Uh, that wasn't, that, that's not the issue. But what has changed in the last five to 10 years um, uh, was the suits. And the explanation for the super fast cycling times nowadays of the guys is not that they, you know, put on more wattage than we used to do. But uh, it's simply the fact that uh, they have new suits, slight improvement on the on the on the bikes and the frames. But you know, in the wheel department, there's no change, and obviously, there's uh, the chains and uh, and the tires have changed and uh, create uh, some advantage. But the main thing is the suits. Do you think that uh, power meters and the ubiquity of power meters has made a big change in? training and or racing because i imagine that uh, in 2005 maybe there was uh, one or at most a handful of athletes that might have been using a power meter and now everybody has them even though uh, well almost everybody uh, some some people choose to to race without and which i can understand but but most athletes as far as i know still train with them yes yes uh, i totally agree 100 um, percent in back in my day uh, only pros had power meters and uh, it was for a kind of an exclusive f- few and of course after that after the the mid 2000s it has spread and now it is everybody um, has a power meter and that ob- obviously um, uh, quantifies quantifies your uh, your performance um, so much more accurate and uh, it's such a great tool to monitor um, your all your cycling um, so of course yes that has changed on on the training side if we go a little bit deeper into that can you give some specific examples of perhaps something that uh, you did or you know that other pros did back in the day that uh, you think that can be seen as maybe a mistake or something that could that is done better these days that has changed in that way well instinctively or because i you know everything that i apply i apply nowadays in training i've 
I've stolen from somebody else. So, you know, you see somebody do something and then you think about it, then you try it. And then, you know, you come up with the, the conclusion, okay, this is good. I'll do it. Or, ah, this is not so good. I won't do it. And instinctively, we did a lot of things right. Um, you know, the structure of the hard day and then followed by a long day, basically. So I had from a very early stage on, um, I did a lot of things right. I mean, that's to some degree obvious because otherwise I wouldn't have been successful because my opponents uh, weren't bad athletes either. Um, so if you do everything wrong, then you probably won't be successful. Um, some things like, you know, the understanding of weightlifting. I did a lot of weightlifting um, in my time, um, but mainly for the upper body. And uh, I wish uh, I did the half, uh, half of the, the bench pressing I did, uh, I, I should have replaced by with the... Uh, um, with, uh, squads and um uh and uh, how is it called and deadlifts and um that would have been way more beneficial um and another problem that i've had i didn't preserve my speed um uh, uh, my lower distance speed when i realized how crucial that is for you know, Ironman performance, um, it was or it already was too late. And um, so I when I refocused uh, on it in a, in a later stage of my career in 2011, um, I realized how how very important that is. And I really, you know, got, got my act together in 2012 and had another very successful year you know, considering the fact that um, I've had, you know, some not so successful years back in 2012, I was uh, second at, at the race in Abu Dhabi, second at Koh Samui, uh, which were both uh, not Ironman or challenge races, but with a significant pro field as there was a lot of prize money. I was, I won Ironman Klagenfurt and I was fifth in, um, in Kona again. Um, and that was to, uh, to a large degree, because I uh, regained some of the some of the speed that I used to have. That's very interesting. I talked with uh, Philip Saip yesterday, actually, and he mentioned the same thing that uh, that speed is something that a lot of people miss when it comes to to long distance training and uh, neglect to maintain that that sort of speed that. Uh, that they might have had if they were focusing on shorter distances, but then let go of it, and that is a a mistake. So yeah, interesting yeah. to hear you say that. Do you think that that's something that most of the pro athletes these days are aware of, or do you think that it's still something that is neglected among the long distance pro athletes? Um, I think that, um, as I said, as I mentioned before, the knowledge about training has increased so much that. Um, Everybody who works with a with a coach that uh, has any uh, any type of knowledge know about the knows about the importance of it, and something that you often um, that you often uh, see in in racing in an athlete's career is he is most successful when the guys switch from short distance 
to long distance at their first or second race, where they still have all that speed from short course racing, and they just put on a lot of mileage in a relatively short period of time. Um, they restructure the training a little bit, and then they have great results. And often they are not able to reproduce those those uh, those performances and at a later stage of their career. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. So the next thing that I wanted to ask about is uh, when it comes to the coaching that you did with Patrick and he's peaking for Kona and managing to be at his absolute best when it mattered the most, can you go into how you achieved that because it seemed quite often that he even after uh, winning or coming third the first year that he went into the race as an underdog because of maybe not having had uh, too many uh, exceptional performances leading up to the race but then when it came to the to the big race he was there when it when it mattered so so how did you achieve that well um one thing is that uh I tried to maintain um, like a, a solid volume. We, Patrick has never trained a lot of volume. You can't compare him um, training-wise with uh, with Jan Frodeno or or uh, Marino van Honaka or uh, Reinhard Tissink. You know, they're putting in way more miles than than Patrick ever did. But um, so we usually we put a block at the um, you know, about five to six weeks into Kona and then a two-week-long taper. And throughout the year, he never really tapered. So this was – the whole training was structured to be – to give him the perfect freshness um, after a solid training block at the end of, of the year. And that worked out quite well. And um, a few other things that we did is that uh, with Patrick, that I included uh, uh, weightlifting on a regular basis throughout the year. And we did more transition runs. And that was basically it. And, you know, the the coaching situation with the, between me and Patrick was that I, I was never very close all the time, you know. I'm not the coach that is on the on the on the on the side of the pool and uh, taking times. I just structured the training a little bit, and uh, it was kind of the relationship between an older brother and the younger brother. And um, if you have athletes that are you know adults and that already know about the sport, that are self motivated, <clears throat> then this can be an approach you know that doesn't work with 16 or 18 year old guys because that's the whole different thing and uh, <clears throat> i was not the guy you know to 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 perfect his technique uh, in swimming or in running or um i was uh, as i mentioned more like an advisor and structuring and uh, so this was my role um with him and of course i made the training plan but uh but he had to execute it himself. And as I mentioned, the, the main things that we changed was that uh, obviously more training, more kilometers on the bike, but that was not so difficult because he didn't ride that much. <clears throat> um, and longer sessions, transition runs, and weightlifting. That was it. 
And when you say that he, he never really really tapered during the year, do you think that uh, maybe that was one of the the keys to being at his best in Kona because he just over many many months from January or December to October he had been building up such a large amount of volume even though maybe the single individual weeks weren't as big as other athletes but if other athletes have been doing more racing they had been doing more more tapering and more recovering from races than in total maybe Patrick did as much or more than many of those athletes and then after tapering for Kona that allowed him to express that fitness do you think that that is a reason that it worked out so well in Kona? Well, you know, if you have an an eight-hour endurance race, to some degree, it's all about the volume. So, and that was it's it's so the one thing is, is obviously it's is, it's the volume. If the volume isn't there, you won't be successful. Um, the other thing is the the I call it the quality of movement. You can call it technique or whatever. Um, so, how do you swim? How efficient do you swim? How efficient do you run? Um, how efficient are you on the bike? <clears throat> and um, and the main qualities of Patrick is that he's very efficient running. Obviously, everybody that ever saw him running sees that uh, he doesn't need a lot of energy for that. And uh, his good aerodynamics on the bike. He's not pushing big watts. Um, it simply is that uh, with his size and uh, with the way he you can you can put him on the bike um, that this is very very efficient. Um, and uh, so those, this, these were a few keys for his success. And from a training perspective or from a coaching perspective, oh, I didn't do much magic, you know. Uh, it, and even with, with my approach, not too many races, not too much stress on the body um, due to traveling, what you mentioned. Um, but you know, if if anybody looks at his schedule, his training schedule, you know, you'd be surprised how simple it is. And uh, because you know, it was it was very basic, and that type of effort wouldn't have been enough if it weren't for his efficient running style and good aerodynamics. An athlete like uh, like Jan Frodeno has to work much more. And other athletes have to work much more to um, uh, to produce the same results. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But but when he said that he what, his volume was low and it was always much lower than uh, than Jans, for example, uh, did you mean before he started working with you, or even after starting working with you? What what kind of volume did you build up to with Patrick after he started working with you? <laughs> well, uh, it, even after we were working together. Um, I, so I, I won't give you I won't give you any specific numbers. You can ask Patrick for you to provide with that. But uh, I can tell you it was on the on the low side of what is possible. I mean, I've seen so many different athletes. <clears throat> An athlete who didn't need a lot of training was uh, Pete Jacobs, for example. Um, it uh, it was uh, amazing with how little he could get away. <clears throat> but. Um, Obviously, guys like Thomas Hellregel and me and Jan Frodeno, um, we were doing much more um, than, or Marino van Honaka, way more than, than Patrick ever had to. Um, so it's not all about the volume. There has to be a certain volume. And not all athletes are the same. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, that, uh, that that's fair enough. Uh, so we know that uh, it's on the on the lower side for the pros, and I think that that's uh, that gives some good context. So switching gears a little bit, uh, you're now working with uh, the German Triathlon Federation and uh, have taken up a role there in preparation for the Olympics and uh, the short course um, championships that are uh, on the line. So can you describe a bit more about that role and what your responsibilities there are? Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> that's a difficult question because uh, nobody really knows. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely I'm called a coach, but I'm not coaching. Um, uh, officially, my title is like like a head coach, but as I mentioned, I do not coach. I work with the individual coaches, which can be uh, you know outside our structure. The outside the federation structure or inside the federation structure um, because we have some high performance centers that are uh, financed by the government and athletes train there but we have athletes that train outside of those structures as well uh, and train for example with uh, an international group or with a different group or whatever um, and then we have athletes uh, living and training um at, at those performance centers. And uh, I usually work with th- those coaches and I try to provide like a frame and I'm like an advisor to the individual coaches. But I do not tell any athlete that uh, tomorrow he has to run, let's say, 10 times uh, 1,000 meters or something. Um, as I said, I try to advise and uh, and provide some general you know, framework for it. Yeah. What is one example you can choose of something that you've advised somebody and obviously without naming any names, but but something that you've seen that you've suggested that this is maybe something we can improve on in some way, whether it's coaching or the training in general to the coach, not to the athlete. Just just an example of of something you've suggested and that has been implemented or is being implemented. That all types of things. I've had an athlete <clears throat> I um, recommended uh, to increase the running volume. Um, I've had many other athletes that uh, I uh, strongly recommended to include more weightlifting. Some athletes are recommended to gain some weight um, and uh, in order to become more healthy. Um, we have... Uh, other athletes that I recommended to uh, to uh, take part in a in some testing on uh, on position and so or first of all to get a proper bike fit and then to um, have some testing on the track um, in order to optimize their position um, and with other athletes I I, I advise to uh, to. Um, reconsider their nutrition so all different things other athletes you know have to change for example a certain routine uh, in their in their weightlifting program you know we have athletes that are so adapted to their weightlifting athletic program that you're like okay you can do this uh, for ages and you won't see any result because you're so adapted to it if you continue doing that you know it's just you just burn calories and that's it Um, so there are all types of, of, of issues and uh, 
Yeah, and sometimes, of course, uh, these recommendations are followed and other times not. I recommend coaches, uh, you know, to to uh, to um, choose a certain location for the training camp, to avoid another location for a training camp. Um, all all sorts of, thing, of things. Yep, that's a great, great list of examples. And what do you think it will take for Germany to be successful at the Olympics and or just in general on the short distance scene? Because you're so dominant in long distance that it's uh, mind blowing, but then it doesn't really seem to translate to uh, to short distance, or it isn't. We don't see that corresponding success there at all, where countries like. Uh, like the US and UK and uh, France and Spain seem to be fighting out for the medals on on the men's and women's side, and Germany isn't really as much one of the big hitters there. Yeah, well, we are not. We are no longer in the Champions League, obviously. Um, I think we've. Uh, well, not I think. I mean, I I know for a fact that the the 2016 Olympics were kind of the down point for the German Federation. I mean, we've had huge issues and uh, nomination uh, lawsuit and uh, only two athletes on the girls' side racing. It was kind of the down point and uh, a very, very huge disappointment for the German Federation and for triathlon Germany in general. And, of course, we have high expectations with our history. Um, and after that, Uh, obviously everything was a bit in uh, in shambles and um, then um, the federation uh, bosses knew that uh, we need a change and um, we have the problem that the long distance is so dominant and attractive so we have several problems but this is one of the problems that if you're a kid in Germany You want to be like Jan Frodeno, Sebastian Kiele, Patrick Lange. This, these are your role models. So we often have kids that join a triathlon club and become triathletes from a very from a very early age on. That unfortunately makes them mediocre swimmers, mediocre runners, and mediocre cyclists. They become triathletes very early on. And what I want to see is I need the 16-year-old swimmer guy that has played um, soccer twice a week. Uh, that's my ideal guy um, for short course. So we had swimming issues. We, we simply had issues to, to find the right guys. And then the federation made mistakes um, regarding bringing up the second row behind our golden generation of Jan Frodeno, Daniel Unger, Steffen Justus, Mike Petzold, uh, Andreas Rehlert, you know, those guys were so dominant that for years um, everybody was neglecting what was behind them because they were there. And uh, the federation and everybody has the tendency to focus on the best ones which is nice you know everybody wants to be connected to success but being connected to success shouldn't uh, pre in prevent you from uh, from looking for the success for tomorrow and this has happened and we wouldn't build our um, our second generation after those guys 
And then the selection process is a problem because we often select fast feet and not hard heads, as I call it. So we had athletes that were, if, if you look back at the history, we had great guys and the juniors and, and young guys and especially strong runners, but uh, they couldn't swim or not on the level that you have to have. So um, there, there was a problem with the selection process. And so many reasons led up to the problem that we've had that, uh, yeah, we weren't back in the Champions League um, of triathlon anymore. And uh, since 2017, there's a new high-performance director. Uh, there has been a change. I mean, the federation brought in me. I've never coached a short course athlete in my whole life. And the federation chose me to for the for the head coach. So obviously they were desperate, um, and uh, we've had a great increase in performance. Um, that's not due to my uh, genius coaching. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that's luck to some some degree, um, but it also uh, shows that um, you know the changes that we've done are slowly coming around. So that uh, brings us nicely to to the question of what what are the how different is short course racing from long course racing when we consider the demands of uh, taking an olympic uh, medal versus taking a medal at at Kona and and how do you account for that in the uh, the role that you have as you say not having the experience of coaching short course athletes but uh, obviously it's something that you you have to get familiar with and uh, and uh, and learn to adapt the the advice and the role that you have to to the new these new de- demands and different demands as different as they are although some things are obviously similar it's still an endurance sport but can you elaborate on what you think are the differences and similarities well you mentioned it it's an endurance sport and if you look at the physiology behind it so it's not so different of course there is difference but you know it's still a long time endurance event if you're two hours out there um that's long time endurance so of course the swimming is way more important in short course than it is in long course so athletes usually spend way more time in the pool um and running is more important um on short course, obviously, it's all important at long course as well, but at a different level. At long course, it's all about economy. And it's absolutely not important how fast you are, if how fast you can go when you're on the red line, when you're trying to kill yourself. It's important how fast you can go when you're when you're putting not so much effort in it. That's what it's all about at Ironman. And at uh, Olympic distance, of course, it's all about how fast are you when you're on the red line. And regarding the, the, the short course has changed as well. If you look at the short course race in the year 2002, you know, that was a running race where everybody warmed up together. It was a wet run. Um, nowadays, with uh, since 2010, since the Brownlees came and since the courses have changed, you know, it's it's it requires the complete athlete it has become so technical on the bike at some courses that 
if you are, even if you're a strong cyclist by power, if you don't know how to how to steer your bike, you know you're lost, um, or you're dangerous and uh, you uh, you're a, a danger to your fellow athletes. So that has changed in the last couple of years, and that was something that the the German Federation wasn't also so aware of. Um, as they were hit a bit by surprise how deep that impact was. Um, so all those technical aspects, and especially regarding the new things that come up, you know, we have the Super League with the eliminator races and and uh, uh, and the relay, the mixed team relay race. So it it becomes way more important that you are fast in your transitions and uh, and that's that's simply not so important for a long course guy um so there there are some certain aspects in training that have to uh, that uh, have to be um that have to be more emphasized running speed swimming speed um and this ability to to overspeed um at uh, at some phases during the race um all that has to be taken into consideration my regarding my job of course i have a i have a good understanding of what's required um simply because i have been in the sport for so long even i i haven't coached a, a world-class athlete and i haven't been um, a world-class short course athlete myself i did my fair share of short course racing um and so i have uh, I, I have a quite solid idea of what's uh, supposed to be happening um but basically you know it's also I'm in to professionalize simply every aspect of our athletes' lives. Um, and uh, this, this, of course, they are young, so you cannot expect a 20-year-old to be as professional as a 20-year-old, a 28-year-old. Um, and this is also one of my tasks. In terms of uh, amateur athletes, uh, because this is where I think that maybe like the differences are even smaller between long course and short course. Because for amateur athletes that are slower, they're not running a 30-minute 10K. They might be running a 40-minute or a 50-minute 10K off the bike. Uh, would you say, because this is something that I tend to uh, explain to the athletes that I coach, that that really a triathlon is an endurance sport no matter what yes you will be doing more volume when training for long distance but essentially you're you're basically developing the same skills it's really not you you shouldn't talk about different sports the way that some people do it when you're comparing olympic distance versus ironman because they are very similar uh, but uh, on the professional side as you say the there are similarities but the differences are a bit bigger there just because of the super fast swim especially how fast you need to get to the first buoy to get in a good position and then also you mentioned the bike skills it becomes much more of a difference between the disciplines or a bigger discrepancy between the skill set required versus the amateur for whom it's still mostly about finding a steady pace to go at and, and not so much race dynamics of course you're absolutely right uh you know if you want to have a good result on a on a Olympic distance race and you're an age group athlete, um, most of your races are anyway uh, non drafting races, so it's all about uh, a steady power output and not about overspeeding. You won't do you simply won't do 25, 30, 50 accelerations 
on your uh, on your bike uh, leg of the race, that simply won't happen. And if somebody attacks on the run, you're probably smart enough not to follow it uh, unless it's the it's in the finish tube. Um, and uh, so you're absolutely right. In in uh, at the amateur level, uh, it's uh, it's simply the distance is longer, and there has no there's no change in the dynamics. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to follow up on, which I think is really interesting that you mentioned earlier about uh, you want a swimmer that has been playing football, for example, and and get away from the focus of starting triathlon at, at a really young age. And I think that that is something that uh, has been a trend in many countries that a young uh, kids are starting to do triathlon uh, immediately rather than coming from a swimming back- background or running background that they used to do or something completely different like football. And in many ways it might sound, you know, good because they get a longer background in triathlon. But what you're saying is that it's actually not so good because you maybe end up being like just a generalist and mediocre across the board. And so that's something, how are you trying to change that mentality? Are you just broadening how you search for athletes to bring into the high performance program by not just looking at triathlon clubs, but also looking at swimming clubs and athletic clubs? Or can you elaborate on that? Well, obviously, uh, we have like talent, uh, talent transfer, um, uh, projects where we try to find other uh, people from that are not already in the system, and especially, of course, in swimming because it's such an important it plays such an important role. And obviously, we are envious um, uh, towards the the Americans uh, that have I don't know each year ten, twenty, fifty thousand college swimmers uh, that they can recruit triathletes from. And if you look at the, the the U.S. girls, for example, I think they have now nine girls in the top fifty or something, and uh, that's that's a, such a depth of talent that they can recruit from that we simply do not have. Of course, there's uh, there's other reasons for that as well. I mean, they are bigger and they have a different sports system, uh, but. Th- they they recruit so much strong swimmers that we simply cannot do, and um, so we. Um, I always call it a bit. It's like cannibalizing our, yourself. We are cannibalizing our short, our future short course success by, you know, having them do a triathlon too early, which is crazy because of course you want people in your sport you want kids in your sport especially regarding uh, the fact that many kids nowadays uh, don't do any sport at all or uh, you know spend too much time in front of the computer so you want those kids to be active to do triathlon but for a long-term career in short course um they said they often don't swim enough and we try to attract those people um by our programs of course many things happen on a on a club level, on a regional level, um, Laura Lindemann, for example, our best girl, um, she was recruited from swimming, um, and there it worked. But often, you know, everybody is a bit uh, uh, wants to keep his talent to himself, um, even if a swimming coach coach knows that uh, um, his swimmer won't be successful in swimming, you know. For, I mean, not not re- really, really super successful. Um, 
they often don't want to give them away to another sport um, and consider the loss. Yeah, yeah, which is understandable in a way because everybody's looking at their own interests. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it does make it uh, different or difficult when when you need to to recruit from those sports and and they might have a really good a good chance to make it as a triathlete. Um, again, another switch of topic here. So, I guess you are you you work closely with the coaches at the performance centers that you have there, and are very familiar with the the training that the guys and girls are going through at this time of year. So, could you give a, a description of what the training for uh, these short course athletes are are doing, like a typical training week in January that we are in now as we talk? <laughs> Well, um, right now, the German Federation has a decentralized system. So we have different training groups that do different things um, at different times. Of course, I mean, some things are similar. Um, one project that we did to professionalize our system is that we introduced a training document, uh, training data documentary. Um, It sounds strange to everybody that uh, is not so familiar with things, but uh, we haven't had um, a training platform that we used. We used Excel sheets um, up to this year. And uh, I was uh, shocked, to be honest, um, when I came in and uh, found out that, you know, we do not use any any you know of those training platforms now we work with two days plan and uh it's it started in november now yeah? so uh, one year since i since i started with the federation we have it and with the federation everything's a little bit slower um but finally we are there where everybody else's uh, was uh, years ago but uh, now we're there and uh, it just started so um i now i have Uh, of course, a better insight. It's not perfect yet, um, but I have a much better insight on one, on, one, on what's actually happening. And um, and you know, it, it's obviously everybody is doing volume now or tries to do volume. Um, but we have so many different types of athletes. Some athletes are prone to injury. For them, 20 hours a week is volume. You know, they they train a lot. Then we have athletes that do 30 that are right now in training camp in South Africa and they do 35 hours and uh, do the regular, you know, 27 kilometers of swimming, uh, 450 kilometers of cycling and maybe 70 to 80 kilometers of running. Uh, right now, we do not have any athlete that has the type of volume that the German golden generation um, did back in the day. Um, simply because most of our athletes are rather young and uh, are not in the in the main performance age um, that you know between 24 and and 30 and uh, most of our guys are younger and are simply ha haven't reached that level yet um, and uh, so we, right now we do not have anyone that runs you know uh three and a half thousand four thousand kilometers a year simply do not have anyone like that mm. and and in this uh, phase of relative volume for what the athletes are used to at least or and where they are in their development 
do they also do uh, a fair amount of higher intensity or is it mostly just base endurance work what how does that intensity figure in yeah it's it's mainly base um uh you know i have about um i have 19 19 uh, guys and girls are um in the in the national team and uh, they have about eight different coaches so some as i as i mentioned earlier are, are within the system and some others are not and um so everybody has that has the its its own agenda um and i have athletes that uh, need a lot of focus on let's say on sprints and uh, technical aspects of short very short intervals um i have athletes that are doing 95 percent base work um and uh, with the big training group that is in South Africa right now, of course, there is some intensity involved, but, uh, you know, maybe one session per sport per week, kind of the regular program. No. Mm. Yep. Okay. Uh, that uh, gives a good overview. And if you, knowing fully well now that you, you currently don't coach any of these athletes individually, you oversee sort of the, the program and the coaches, but if you were to uh, still give an overview of your general view on training for for short course triathlon, your coaching philosophy, if you if you will, can can you give an overview? And knowing fully well that it's individual, you said that some athletes have a need for more speed, etc. So I know it's difficult, but try to give an, an overview and maybe a few examples. Well, what we know, what we simply know, is that. Every athlete that is on the top level at short course uh, does a certain volume. And that's a volume that most of my athletes haven't reached yet. So that's something for that is absolutely sure. A guy like Javier Gomez uh, or the Norwegian guys. Um, the Norwegian guys, by the way, uh, they're how they're training i mean it's pretty easy to talk about them because uh, they put everything on strava um so whatever they do um that is quite similar to what the germans used to be doing um regarding volume and uh, and uh, and uh, doing the a lot of threshold um workouts um that obviously that can be successful um that would kill some of my athletes, by the way. Um, uh, some of the, the training days that they do, uh, I have maybe one or two athletes that are physically able to train that um, without being broken down the next day. Um, so it, it's it's simply, it's let's put it that way, we are in a process. I have some great talent, really great talent, and we've had some good development. I mean, Girls like Nina Aim and Caro Pole, Lisa Terch, um, they have developed very well, but they're, they're not first class yet. And uh, one thing for sure is that they do not train enough yet, but they can't. You know, I can't have an athlete that does 800 hours a year and then the next day you should do 1,200. So then he's dead. Uh, I mean, it has to be a gradual process, but we are in the process. And uh, my job is to to make sure that we follow the process. And uh, I think we're doing that. Um, you know, 
obviously more or less successful with one or the other athlete. Um, but uh, there is there was a huge improvement, and um, yeah, so we, we're working on it. And um, volume is a is a big issue. Um, we have seen with some athletes that cycling um, volume is some athletes try to increase the cycling volume, not only with my guys, but with some training groups um, in order to avoid too much running because that makes you uh, it's more dangerous regarding injuries. And um, we have, especially for some of my athletes that are prone to injury as well, I'd like to, f to focus on that and use more, more cycling volume in order to create those aerobic base that uh, is simply necessary to be successful do you also think that the cycling we talked a little bit about how the uh, technical aspect has changed and the accelerations out of curves and things but just in general since the brownlee brothers as you mentioned the cycling has become more aggressive and you're more likely these days to see a, a breakaway that sticks uh, on the bike and simply the requirements to to also be able to not just be technically proficient but to put out solid power for uh, for an hour that uh, that has increased in the last 10 years or so and and there is therefore a bigger uh, emphasis and or incentive to to do more focus more on the bike yeah yeah that's for sure and uh, it's not i wouldn't call it solid power for uh, for an hour but uh, but To maintain those many accelerations, that was also an issue that you had with the generation. Uh, the training, especially the cycling training, I think that generally everything that we did about running um, was quite good and a lot of emphasis on, uh, on, on everything, on footwork and running volume and running speeds. So the whole federation was always centered about this because it used to be the kind of quality that you needed. Um, with cycling, we weren't so proficient. And um, now we realize that uh, the cycling training has to change. And uh, some coaches from the German Federation obviously were aware of that quite from an early stage on. Um, but I'm talking about the, the, the general direction. And uh, we know that this is not, not sufficient. You know, you gotta be good with your intervals, things like lactate, clearance, uh, VO2 max intervals, uh, however you call it, the, those things um, are, are a requirement. They are not an option. They're a requirement. Uh, and if you haven't done your homework in, in this uh, area, then uh, you won't be able to run afterwards. Mm. And when you mentioned the the volume that is required to be one of the best, what, what's the the end goal? Like a a target sort of yearly hours for for a top athlete. I mean, it's going to be a range, obviously, and each athlete is still individual. But roughly, to what level do you think at least we need to get? I mean, I mean, I don't think that there are two opinions. It's between 1,000 and 1,200 hours that are required to do uh, professional sport on the highest level. Uh, and you always find the one talent that ha doesn't have these requirements. I mean, I have Justus Nieschlag, 
on the team, which is probably the biggest triathlon talent that I've ever seen, um, he's able to put out numbers with uh, very, very little training that is simply amazing. Um, his biggest thing was that uh, he was always injured and uh, he has to find a ways to stay healthy. Um, and if he has uh, a fair amount of training, then he's dangerous. Um, but uh, unfortunately, you know, he hasn't had one season where he didn't have any issues. Yeah. Yeah. So then obviously first order priority is to be able to go through that and get the consistency and build from there. Yeah, you you mentioned some things about the intensity already, but uh, can you describe a little bit more about what how you think about intensity for these athletes? When and how should it be included, and uh, how how hard should you go? Do you have an opinion whether it's uh, are you more of the polarized school, or do you like to do more threshold tempo stuff work and and so on? That is also individual you know if you have somebody that already has a um uh, i think with training peaks it's called aerobic power you know the, the percentage of your view to max that you're able to use um if you have a guy like that then probably a lot of tempo sessions won't do it maybe he has to increase his view to max so other guys have have no technical idea of going fast You know, I have other athletes that, you know, have a physiology that is made for endurance. They are spectacular, but they don't know how to swim. They don't know how to cycle and they don't know how to run, to put, to put it brutal. <laughs> they have no technical concept. You know, how do I run fast? How do I swim fast? Where do I put the arm? And so for those guys, there is, they have to, to, To basically to learn how to swim properly and to swim 25 meters fast and when they can then when they can implement that then they're going to be fast because all the cardiovascular things that uh, are required they already have um so it's 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 pretty hard um, i'm basically i'm not such a big fan of of a lot of threshold work um because uh, it It makes you tough, but it also makes you tired. So I'd rather see them doing shorter intervals, like VO2max things, but that's very, very general. You know, it always comes down to the individual athlete. And what I've seen throughout all the athletes uh, of the German team, that they can still use longer sessions. That's That's my... That's the general thing, you know, not uh, six sessions a day with 45 minutes or something or four sessions or whatever. Um, the sessions are quite short and I'd like them to, to do longer sessions, at least at some stage throughout the year in order to, to build up that aerobic base. And that's what's lacking due to the fact that, you know, you select fast feet and uh, fast feet getting tired when they have to do long sessions. And so too little long sessions and uh, too many sh too short ones mm, okay yeah that's uh, that gives a great overview and one question again on the intensity is something that uh, that i ask a lot of uh, guests and coaches uh, do you think that uh, 
when you're going to, for example, you're going to do your VO2 max intervals on the bike or on the track or in the pool, when when you do, should you finish with uh, with a couple of reps left in the tank, or or do you think that when you go hard, you really go uh, to un- until you, until you can't do another one, basically, or or until at least you're very very tired? What what's your thought on that? Mm. <sighs> Let's put it that way. If, if for example, if you take a session that that everybody likes to do, it's the thirty thirties on on the bike. You know, thirty yeah. seconds hard, thirty seconds easy. And uh, uh, if you, if when I spoke with one of my coaches and I was like, oh yeah, you have to do that and you do it three times, uh, three times, seven times, you know, so so three times, seven minutes, five minute rest in between. So, and he said, my athlete can't do that. And I was like, why can't you do that? And then, yeah, you know, they built up so much lactic acid. And so, huh? why, why is that? So, yeah, have you looked at the numbers? So they were going all out at the first one, and then they simply would die through the set of five repetitions. Yes, of course you're dying if you do go all out. Yeah. That's not that's not what's supposed to be happening. So, of course, there's a target. And, uh, I mean, if you, if you uh, request you have to think about what's supposed to be happening. If you want to do a VO2 max durable, you, you know, your athlete. And of course he gets, um, he gets uh, a number that he has to hit and then to repeat. And uh, if he cannot do it, then the question is, why was that the case? And that can't be all out. If you do a VO2 max set, that just is not, what yeah. it's supposed to be if you're working on something else like uh, you want to increase your your lactic acid build rate then of course it has to be all out and then uh, you do longer breaks so there's always uh, the first is what's the aim of the session and then uh, what's supposed to be happening and of course if you're at the end of your session and you're done you can repeat another thing then that's fine you know because that's okay and uh, that simply means that you have you should fulfill whatever is on the schedule because i mean there was an idea behind it yeah yeah that that was the question basically let's say you go to the track and you do uh, six times one kilometer and you are supposed to run them at 250 pace let's say that that's the vo2 max uh for this athlete and uh and they get to their six one they complete all of them at 250 but then they're absolutely uh completely uh, done after that six one they could not do another one so the question is essentially is that okay or because a lot of coaches or some coaches uh, prefer that well maybe you should stop after the fifth one so that you could still do one more and have one a little bit energy left in you but uh, but you're saying that for you it's okay if you're we, absolutely done, done after completing the last we, one. now we're leaving we are leaving a little bit the the physiology and we turn into psychology so for example what's the incentive for an athlete you know if 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 you have your athletes doing six times a kilometer and uh, then whatever uh, you know uh, one guy still feels like uh, he he wants to prove that he can run one more and uh, and then he runs one in 240 uh, because uh, you know they they made a bet and whatever, then 
then he might be able to do it. So mm, that's something else that comes into play is that um, if you do the perfect session, you improve your athlete, you know, by a fraction of, of a percentage. If you have him, if you work on his brain and you motivate him somehow, we're talking about percent. You know, it's, it's pretty simple. We have five guys swimming um, a set, uh, whatever set you like, six times 200 in the pool. And they swim and, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and after the fourth one, three girls in bikinis, three hot girls in bikinis come onto the pool, believe the three times will increase. That's for sure. I mean, that's happening because it's in their brain. And uh, that they want to, you know, uh, attract and uh, prove themselves and whatever. So, uh, and and you can write on the program whatever you like, but we are just, if you have a, another incentive and you work on the brain, then you get another performance output. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. That makes sense. Uh, the other thing that I want to ask as well is, uh, how much does testing uh, play a role, physiological testing and uh, or even field testing uh, in the program? And again, it's decentralized, so it might be different for different athletes, different groups, but it, just in general. So, I mean, I think that the Norwegians are a bit already over the line and, uh, you know, too much data probably confuses you <laughs> instead of uh, it benefits you. But it would be it would be crazy not to use um, you know the the opportunities at least some of the opportunities that you have these days and most of the day, most days if you take a coach that has a fifty year that is fifty years old and has twenty thirty years experience then he knows the outcome of any kind of testing he knows. Even if he cannot, if he they cannot use the scientific terms for a certain aspect of an athlete, then he knows why this guy is not as fast as the other one, or faster, or um, why this, this guy can do these things and another one can, um, simply due to experience and because he has seen so much. But um, having said that, of course, it's an advantage, you know, if you have the lab. Uh, to to really make sure some of the things that you see in in the field, and often it's or in ninety percent of the cases, it's just um, a, a, a reconfirmation of what you thought it was. But in order to be sure, and sometimes you know you might have missed something, some aspect, um, so it makes sense. But you know, you can, you can, any, every test that you apply has strengths and weaknesses. And uh, coaches in former times did a certain set that they would repeat, you know, six times 200 swimming, do that every four weeks, three weeks, the athlete gets faster. It's a good test. And sometimes I do not care whether his aerobic power, anaerobic power, capacity, whatever has improved. I simply care about one thing in general, and that's is the athlete faster or not. So, of course, it's nice to know why that is, 
and what my training did um, and to really check if I'm on the right track or not. But in the, in the end, you know, there are several ways that lead to success. And uh, the most important thing in professional sport is that you are successful. Yeah, that makes sense. And is again, seeing as you have the decentralized system, do you think that there's a big difference between the different athletes and coaches in how they balance this sort of the art and the science of coaching? Like some are very much skewed to one side or the other or are all uh, pretty much balanced using both of those? Or how, how do you see uh, that that interplay and that balance? Oh, of course, that's as it has a lot to do with personal preference. I mean, um, if if I look at the at the regional coaches, you know, that are re- responsible for the different uh, German states, um, then we have guys that that haven't come from the sport that have that are totally focused on physiology and testing and and the whole scientific part of it. I've had athletes that also the uh, coaches that also do not come from the sport that have a very education minded approach to it. They want to educate their athlete, educate them towards the sport and and uh, maybe even an approach where performance isn't the most important thing. Of course, it's important, but not the most important thing. Um, so uh, and others, you know, we simply work with the experience. They have been athletes. They know what they did when they were juniors um, or athletes, and they they try to apply that. So it, it's it's different. You know, some try, guys try to test each and everything all the time, um, and others are like, well, uh, why should I test? Because uh, I see them swim, I see them run, and then I know. So, um, of course, from a federation perspective, you have to have make sure that, um, that there is a certain amount of testing is done. What we have is we have the the testing uh, in Leipzig, which is a requirement for every member of the national team twice a year um, to take part in some standardized tests there, lab tests. Um, and this is kind of the core of our testing. But, uh, of course, you know, I'd like to implement some more things because uh, I don't think that this is this is very good, what we have. Um, but this is also uh, a big effort. The athletes have to travel to Leipzig and it's, uh, it takes two days. It's a lot of different tests. And sometimes you want to ha- have an athlete do a simple uh, a simple lab test, you know, where he's half an hour on the bike and I see how the, the thresholds have have changed yeah yeah uh so so would you say that the the best approach still like in general is the the approach that works simply and that's different for uh, each each coach like for some it works very well to to be focused more on the science side and for some it works very well well to be focused on the the art side and and well obviously not neglecting uh, completely the other but but still there is a and you you allow in the federation you allow a, a wide range of the different where you can fall on that spectrum. Um, you know some things we cannot we cannot uh, order somebody to do. Um, we can recommend a few things, and of course we recommend all our our coaches you know to make use of 
the scientific um, side of the sport and to, of the of the things that we provide because it makes sense. And some guys have to be encouraged to do that, and others do it by themselves. And uh, you know, it's it's a bit. A couple of years ago, you know, heart rate was like, ah, uh, why do I? I don't need a heart rate. And we had an age where where all the training when Polar came up in the mid '90s, you know, all the training was heart rate. Uh, monitored and 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 everything was uh, in running everything was on on heart rate but heart rate of course is is very uh um can be influenced by a lot of factors uh, and then some at some point you know uh, athletes would throw away their heart rate monitors um and say it's all nonsense i still run i, I run only by time or on cycling i i only have one that doesn't make any sense Heart rate is simply another tool I can use. And I don't have to get crazy about it, but I can use it. And um, and that should be the approach. So I have all those data that I can collect. And uh, most of the time, most of the data will be some kind of a normal range. And the data is only there, you know, to give me kind of a warning sign. So, oh, I may have missed something because... Something's happening that's quite unusual. And in this regard, I think uh, science has to be used, should be used. But for me, a coach is like a cook. You know, you you get a certain piece of meat, huh, to put it in a brutal way. You have different ways to cook it. You have different different ingredients. And you try to apply what you've learned, what you've seen, all the tools that you have in order to make it the perfect dish. Of course, it's easier to make a very nice dish when you get filet uh, instead of uh, uh, whatever uh, uh, cow leg. Um, but still, you know, if you have the right tools, you can do something very nice out of uh, cow leg. You know? So, um And, and this is how I see it. It's kind of an art form, like a cook. You know, you put this in, you try this, and you try to do this and that, uh, all from your toolbox. But every coach has to have a good toolbox. And this is your, your education, your experience. And, uh, and I think this is kind of, uh, yeah, this kind of is a, is a proper picture. Yeah, you know? that, that makes A perfect sense and with the same piece of meat you can you can cook it in different ways and still get results as well you can put it on a grill or you can put it in the oven and uh, the it might uh, end up different but equally good so uh, yeah i like that analogy F finally a couple of questions for especially for the benefit of the the age group athletes listening to the show uh, what do you think are some of the most common mistakes that age group athletes tend to do and should try to avoid in triathlon? Of course, one, the huge, the, 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 one of the biggest mistakes is training uh, on regular rides too hard, um, kind of always in that middle pace, uh, you know, uh, 32.8 kilometers an hour uh, in training and uh, 33.2 uh, in racing. Um, this is one of the common things and the opposite or, or with women, 
often tends to be a different way. Uh, they often go so slow all the time. They never go hard. Um, this is also an issue. Even when the, when the pro ranks, uh, women often try to do 30% more and are then tired when it comes to doing the hard stuff. Mm. And uh, any other advice? So not uh, necessarily related to mistakes, but just general advice for age group athletes? Mm. Well, volume is king, that's for sure. But quality of movement, you know, that's also something that uh, it doesn't make any sense to swim 20 kilometers a week if, if, if you do not know how to swim freestyle properly. If um, you're technique has to be on a certain level in order to pump up the volume if it's not you'd rather work on the technique first and then pump up the volume even if that may take time and uh, yeah and same goes for running you know most guys have an okay running style um but if there's some huge issue then uh then You'd rather work first on the on on the running technique. Do you think that uh, if uh, the running style is uh, is good, that it uh, it isn't necessarily uh, beneficial to try to do small tweaks here and there, or like that might even be risky and cause injury risk? Uh, that it's mostly if you have uh, any big issues that you should correct it. Or do you think that even if it's uh, pretty decent running form that there might always be room for improvement because there are a few different schools of thoughts on that so i wanted to hear your opinion well um it depends every every effort to change technique usually will first of all uh, result in a loss of efficiency and uh, especially in running as it comes so natural to you you got to be very careful. And uh, I'm not uh, an advocate of uh, of doing uh, forefoot running or whatever. Um, usually you should try to improve the style via, if it, if it is at a certain level, um, via simply improving the, the, the fitness, the general fitness and doing some drills. That usually is... If you if you watch how uh, track and field athletes learn how to run, they do a lot of tri- drills uh, on a young age, and this is how they get a certain running style, running form. Um, and so you know, and bear in mind the realities of life. The average the average male European triathlete uh, is about eighty kilograms. Um, to turn him into a four-foot runner is injury risky. Um, it's more about, you know, have estimate, you know, how how good, how bad it is. And, of course, some smaller th- improvements, you know, like what do you do with your arms um, can be uh, applied. Um, but, of course, that's something very hard to generalize um and uh, you know you you have to look at the individual and then make a decision but uh, i'm i'm not a big fan of uh forcing everybody to to run forefoot or something okay yep makes sense so let's uh start to wrap up and uh finish off with the rapid fire question so take 
15 seconds or less, and I'll repeat that because a lot of guests don't hear that the first time. 15 <laughs> seconds or less to answer this. And uh, the first question is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon? Uh, triathlon magazine, the, the German version. And what's Pre- your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Uh, my bike. What bike are you riding? Uh, an old Stork TT bike. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your triathlon or coaching career? Uh, doing more squats and less bench press. All right. Thank you so much, Ferris, uh, for taking the time and uh, sharing all your knowledge with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, all the best for uh, Tokyo and uh, and beyond with uh, the work with the Federation and, and the Germany's hopefully new domination of short course triathlon <laughs> in the coming years. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed that episode with Ferris. I thought it was fascinating to hear his uh, thoughts and uh, especially things like how things have changed since he was active, what they did right, what they maybe could have improved and what well, what has improved in the 15 years that has passed since his uh, victory in Hawaii. You can find the show notes of for the episode on thattreflonshow.com and you can find all elite uh, training episodes that i will tag this as as well in the description of this episode in your podcast player app we've had a lot of them recently with the philip sype craig kirkwood ryan bolton and dan atkins among others so do go and listen to those episodes if you haven't already but at the moment of recording this outro i do not know who will be the next interview but uh, i'm sure it will be a great guest so uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already so you don't miss anything and of course there are as well the first say q and a's that uh, i know a lot of you listeners think are the, uh, the most important episodes that you listen to if you need any help with uh, your training whether you're a beginner trying to do your first race or your first race at a longer distance or you're a very advanced athlete, age grouper, or professional, check out the coaching services we offer and the ready-made training plans, if uh, that is your preference, on scientifictriathlon.com. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for you, and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And a big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. That's where you'll get your 20% discount code for your order, whether you're looking for wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, or prescription glasses, Roka has you covered. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.